speaker this evening is not a stranger to most of you. Some of you may not uh, know him. He may be new to a few of you. Jim Myers is uh, a missionary. We're all actually missionaries, but he is not serving here. He's serving in Ukraine, he and his wife Phyllis. And uh, uh, Jim is, I count, as a not only a colleague but a dear friend. And I always enjoy being here at the conference when he comes and he sits up here next to me and he sings because he's got such a great voice. And I don't get to sing along with him when we're in Ukraine because he's always singing in Russian. (laughs) And I'm just stumbling along trying to understand the words and get maybe one out of every three out of my mouth because tunes are the same. I'm going, gee, I recognize that tune. What song is that? Okay. But anyhow, it's great to have him here. And his topic this evening is on how were folks saved in the Old Testament. Now, that may seem like an odd question for some of you, for some of us to ask. But Jim and I have knocked this around for several years because there seems to be a certain lack of precision in the Old Testament. And if you read dispensational theologians, people you know and love like Chafer, Ryrie, Walvard, others, Seems a little, that's not so precise in some of their writings either. And so it was important to sit down and say, what, what, how are people saved? What's the basis? What's going on in the Old Testament? What's the relation of sacrifices and offerings and all of these other things to salvation? So this is Jim's topic, so I'm looking forward to that. And Jim will start and go about an hour, and then we'll have about 10 minutes for our final Q&A session. Jim. We get turned on here. <laughs> what turns me on is teaching the Word of God. Now, that's a turn on, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm just overjoyed to be here. I mean, this has been a truly wonderful conference for, for me and Phyllis. And it, it really is great to see you. I come and it gives me encouragement. It gives me hope. I know things look bad out there, but I know that we're in the plan of God and you folks are standing firm. You're standing fast. And it doesn't matter what the world does. It matters what we do. And it matters what you do. And things may get very bad, but you're the remnant. And you are the only hope for this nation. And we need to be prepared for whatever comes. Because whether it's good or whether it's calamity, God has a plan for us. He's made provision for us. And we're here for one purpose, and that's to glorify the Lord. And if we keep that in mind, then we're going to be all right. Because God has not promised that His blessing is always going to be peace and security or prosperity or health. But he's promised to supply our heart's desire if we delight ourselves in him. And if your heart's desire is to be pleasing to the Lord and to glorify him, he's going to make that happen. And he'll use you to do it. So I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm also thrilled because I'm looking around 
And I'm saying there are so many people who have blessed our ministry in Ukraine. And it's really amazing. We've got Bob Bolander down here. He's been seven times. I mean, he counts things. He, you know, he's obsessive compulsive about counting things. Uh, Dan Ingram has been over to Ukraine. He's helped our ministry there. Old Gene Brown in the back there. I mean, this man is an evangelist, and he can't help himself. Uh, he can't. He was supposed to come and teach some theological subject, and he had to throw that all out and just teach evangelism. And he had to go out and tell people about Jesus. And uh, he, he just can't help it. And I, I love to see that. But he came and was a blessing to our ministry. Back here we've got Ray Mondragon. And next to him we have Anthony Griego, uh, who's going to come over next year, and he's going to teach. And, of course, you heard from Luda today. What a godly woman she is, and she has been a blessing for us for more than 15 years. And she is faithful. When we have prayer meeting, even if nobody else comes, Luda is there. And she loves to tell people about Jesus. She's a wonderful evangelist, but uh, just such an encouragement to us. And she's worked with us uh, in our ministry. The Atwoods have gone, but uh, Todd has been over to teach with us. We've got Paul and Lena uh, way in the back there, and uh, they have been to Ukraine. Uh, Pastor <laughs> Mark Perkins uh, back here, he's been several times to uh, Ukraine. Uh, how many? Seven. Okay, we got... But the prize... Yes. Nine. I got nine. I got nine. nine, nine, nine. We'll give me ten. We give you ten. We give you ten. Okay. But the prize winner back here, how many times? Well, it's got to be at least 15. I mean, you've been coming since... Oh, yeah, but you went to Kazakhstan with me, so we'll chalk that up. So... Because Pam came, yes. <laughs> but also, <laughs> that was a missionary experience, I'll tell you. They, those two grew through that, uh, that experience. I mean, I was in he was in Mogilov, yes, Belarus. Um, but the most time, uh, Mark Musser back here, a stalwart, and uh, Mark was there not seven times, but seven years. And. Uh, he brought his kids over there when they were infants. I mean infants. He just committed them to the Lord, and his heart was to, to serve the Lord, and he came. and uh, Boy, he, he was such a tremendous blessing when we first started our Bible school. Wow. And uh, he'll tell you how many hours a day we were teaching and five days a week, and all of the other ministries you're doing, and uh, and Mark still continues to come two or three times a year, and uh, what a tremendous blessing uh, all of you have been, uh, and we have seen fruit, and I'm just thrilled with the fruit. Two weeks ago, I went to a place I'd never heard of before. It's called Man Shack. Sound like some store where you go and buy camping equipment or something. 
man shack, little town over south of Austin. <laughs> Tommy Ice, okay. <laughs> But I walked into Manshack Bible Church. There was a young man who was standing up teaching. It was Bob Bolander III. And he had graduated from our Bible college in Ukraine. And sitting out in the audience was this young Russian woman who was also a graduate of our Bible college, Bob's bride. But how she got saved, she had gone from Russia to Turkey to work. And when she got to Turkey, she met this Ukrainian couple who were missionaries who had come out of our Bible college. And they told her about Jesus. And she got saved. And she got into their church. And she started growing spiritually. And then she came up to Ukraine to study the Bible. And there she met B3, and uh, they ended up getting married. But to me, this was just so thrilling. But I want you to know, you who have supported our ministry, this is just an extension of what you do. We are an extension of your churches. And so you can say, yes, this church is preaching the gospel in other places. And there has been fruit, and the Lord has blessed that, and I want to thank you. It's just, it's a joy, it's a privilege to be associated uh, with you, and I want to thank you for that. We need your prayers. If you didn't get a prayer card, okay, get one afterwards, take it and put it on your refrigerator, tape it on your mirror, put it on the visor of your car, or wherever you're going to see it and be reminded, Jim and Phyllis need prayer. Okay. Uh, I would ask you to do that. Um, and so just thank you, all of you, for standing with us, for supporting us, for encouraging us in so many ways. Because the Lord is blessing what you're doing. And we just have the privilege of of being out there. People have asked about, are we in danger? Uh, probably less so than those that live in places in America. Baltimore comes to mind. Even Houston comes to mind. That's God's business. We're in His hands, and we can trust Him. Pray for Ukraine, though. Uh, you don't get much news here. I'll tell you that. I've talked to a lot of you. In the last 18 months in eastern Ukraine, there have been more than 22,000 casualties. You getting that on your news? I don't think so. That's killed and wounded. That's a lot of people. Okay? We're not hearing that here in America. Um, and this has interrupted some of our ministries in eastern Ukraine. Luda said today she hasn't been able to go there because of the conflict. She used to go there. I used to go over to Lugansk. We had a church 
over there. We had uh, two men who went through our Bible college who were f- uh, from Lugansk. They're gone. The church is gone. It doesn't exist anymore because the people have left. Luda mentioned refugees. Now you're going to hear things, well, these people want to join Russia. I'm going to tell you a million and a half refugees have left Eastern Europe in the past year, or Eastern Europe, Eastern Ukraine in the past year. A million and a half. They didn't go to Russia. They came to Kiev looking for a place to live, looking for jobs. But the city's filled up. There aren't jobs. There aren't very many places to live. They've gone to Italy. They've gone to Greece. Not very much job (laughs) opportunity in those places either. They're going to the Czech Republic. They're going to Poland. They're trying to survive. But this has caused many ministries to shut down. They're just gone. But we still have great freedom in Ukraine. We can preach the gospel. We can go out in public and go to the park and preach the gospel. We can pass out tracts. We can print and distribute literature. We can plant churches. We have a Bible college, and it's a great place to be. It's a great place to serve the Lord right now. Please pray for for Ukraine. I ask you to do that because the Lord is doing something there. Now, we're small, but who has despised the day of small things? And uh, one of my great heroes is... Bill Miller. Now, you know, you all know Bill. What a great Christian he is. You ever heard of this man as a great Christian? I don't think so. He is just a man in the pew, just a Christian, obscure as a believer. Nobody writes him up even until this day. But he was just faithful, and he would tell others about Jesus as he had opportunity. He... uh, had a small business in Boston. He was selling shoes. And he had this young man that came to work for him, a teenager really, and Mr. Miller gave this young man the gospel. That young man's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is responsible for the salvation, ultimately, of millions of people. He preached to more people in history until they got modern media and the the great uh, crusades that they had here in this country back in the 50s. But D.L. Moody preached to more people, and he did it without a microphone. And he started the Moody Bible Institute. Moody Bible Institute has produced more missionaries than any other institution in history. When Phyllis and I were students there, one out of every ten missionaries in the world had come out of Moody Bible Institute. We're going to go back to Mr. Miller. I want to tell you, if you are faithful in serving the Lord, you, you, obscure believer, or some pastor in Podunk Corners, or Manshack, or... Kylie or wherever you are, God just wants you to be faithful, and you can bring him great glory, and the results are in God's hands. If he wants to give you a church of 25,000, well, 
Praise God. If he wants to give you a church of 25, praise God. If he wants to give you a house church where you've got a half a dozen people, praise God. All we have to do is be faithful, and he will use you. And you can change the course of human history. You say, I'm nobody. That's what God wants. All you have to do is be faithful, and you will change human history. You give somebody the gospel, they become saved. Not only have you changed history, you have changed eternity. Little old you. And God wants to work through you, and He has given you gifts, and He has given you His Holy Spirit, and He wants to work through you. Now, our topic tonight is salvation before the cross. I was reminded, in 1962, I left a small town in northeastern Ohio, and I went to a very wicked city on the west coast called San Francisco. I got on a city bus. Now, my hometown didn't have city buses. We weren't big enough. But I got on the bus, and I I recall all of the advertising that they had on the top of the bus. They had all of these signs. And I'll never forget this one sign that I saw up there, and it said, Illiterate? Question mark? <laughs> For information, write the NEA at this address. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that all of you are literate. And... You can get uh, the book on tough questions that Grant Hawley has produced, put out, the Bold Grace has put together, and uh, you can read my paper in there. So I am not going to read that to you because you're all literate. But I want to talk about this topic because it's timely, and I... I'm very concerned about this topic because it bears on many things that are taking place in our country today with regard to Christianity. The gospel is under attack. You know this. The word of God is under attack. That's nothing new. You know when the first attack came on the word of God? It was before there was any sin in the human race because... Satan came to the woman and he said, Has God really said? Did God really say that? That's an attack on the Word of God. And all through human history there have been attacks on the integrity of the Word of God. Peter writes, talking about the Apostle Paul, and he said that there are untaught and unstable people who are twisting the Scriptures, Paul's writings, to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, it's being distorted. Paul wrote in Galatians, I marvel that you are turning away so quickly from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you, and they want, they desire 
to pervert the gospel of Christ. It has not changed. In all of human history, there are attacks on the gospel. There are attacks on the word of God. And part of the problem we have today is many of these attacks are coming from born-again Christians, from those who would call themselves evangelicals. And Michael Rydelnik was supposed to be the keynote speaker And I'm sorry you got stuck with me instead, because Michael is a great scholar. He's head of uh, Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, and he wrote this book. If you don't have it, I want to encourage you to get it, especially you pastors or seminary students. If you haven't read this book, you need to read this book. It's not very big, but it is just packed full of good information. It's called The Messianic Hope. Is the Hebrew Bible really messianic? Now, Michael wrote this book because he started reading other scholars, theologians, contemporary men, and many of them are Christians, genuinely born again, and many of them would be in our camp, as it were, as far as preaching the gospel and believing in the Word of God, but... They have taken the Messiah out of the Old Testament. They're saying, oh, no, 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 that's not a messianic passage. And so he wrote this book in response to that and saying, yes, Messiah is in the Old Testament. And the problem is we cannot see Messiah in the Old Testament today. We have on blinders. We have on dark glasses and we're not seeing him. And so they're saying that such passages as Genesis 3.15, that's the first gospel. This is where the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. They say, that's not messianic. That's, that's about women and snakes. Women don't like snakes. I don't either. Or they say, well, that's really a metaphor for the perpetual struggle between good and evil. But that's not Messiah. That's what people are saying today. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall you know, call his name Emmanuel. They say, oh no, that's not, that's not messianic. That's just talking about some unmarried contemporary woman. Isaiah 9.6 Here we have this marvelous description. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And they say, that's not Messiah. They're saying, oh no, this is a statement about God Himself. It's a long name for God. But they're saying, that's not about the Son, it's about God. And they're they're taking the Messiah out of the Old Testament. And I've been shocked at some things I've read about Job 19.25. I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand in the latter days on the earth. And even if skin worms destroy my body, yet I know that in my flesh I will see God. They say, it's not Messiah. 
And they say, oh, Redeemer there? Why, that's got nothing to do with New Testament redemption. And they are taking so many passages that we say, this is Messiah. They say, no, it's not. They're not messianic. Now, if Messiah is not to be found in these passages, then this has an, a profound impact on what one believes about Old Testament salvation, but it also has an impact on what we are believing today about the grace of God and the plan of God. Now, there is really a great divide on understanding how were people saved in the Old Testament. Basically four views. One is keep the law or do good works. And it's surprising how many people hold to this view. We know it's wrong. We know that works cannot save. And the Apostle Paul put so much emphasis on this in the New Testament, saying over and over again, especially in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, not by the works of the law. The law cannot justify. The law cannot save. The law cannot give life. The law cannot give the Spirit. The law is powerless to do these things. That was true before the cross. It's true after the cross. Then there is a covenant theology view. We'll look at that. There is a dispensational theological view of salvation in the Old Testament. And as you would guess, there is a great divide between covenant theology and dispensational theology. But I think you're going to be shocked in just a moment when we look at some quotes. And then there is a modified view of Old Testament salvation, which we will talk about. All right, we know from Hebrews 10.4 it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, people were not saved by animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Now, let's take a look first at covenant theology. William Cox in his amillennialism today, counterpoint to dispensationalism today, men of the Old Testament looked forward and accepted the propitiation through Christ on faith, while those of the New Testament era accept the finished sacrifice. Oh, we don't have any problem with that, do we? Okay. James Montgomery Boyce, the Old Testament women... And men looked forward to Christ. We look back. They look toward the cross. The cross is now completed, so we're looking back to the cross, and this is the basis for salvation. Charles Hodge says the Redeemer is the same under all dispensations. He who was predicted as the seed of the woman as the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the branch, the servant of the Lord, the prince of peace, is our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. He, therefore, from the beginning, has been held up as the hope of the world, the Savior of men. Now, Hodge has gone a little bit further. He's not just saying, well, looking forward to the cross or looking back to the cross. Now he is saying the object of faith for salvation is Jesus Christ, specifically Jesus. 
Boswell, in his systematic theology, said, Abel's faith was, in substance, faith in the atoning work of Christ, the promised Redeemer. Now, he's saying, Abel must have understood about the atoning work of Christ. Now, we come... That's basically just covenant theology is saying they put faith in Jesus. And uh, I could give you a lot of other quotes from different covenant writers, but they all say basically the same thing. Now, they do this because of their peculiar view of covenants. And they believe in two or three covenants, none of which are found in Scripture, but they have a covenant of works, and they say Adam blew it, uh, he, he didn't have enough good works, he sinned, and so uh, he lost out, and so God instituted a covenant of grace. Uh, and then they say salvation is now offered between some hypothetical covenant that was made with Jesus and God in eternity past. They call it the covenant of redemption. But essentially what they're saying is that after Adam sinned, then God instituted a covenant of grace and that people from that time on were saved by faith in Jesus, specifically Jesus. Uh, And they they say there's just one people of God. Now, some covenant theologians say, well, uh, the people of God began with Adam. Others say that uh, the church began in the tents of Abraham. But in either case, they are saying that it was by faith in Jesus specifically, and there's just one people of God, and they have no distinction between Israel and the church. Now, when we come to dispensational theology, they differ very markedly from covenant theology in this regard, and they say salvation in the Old Testament was by faith in God and not by faith in Jesus Christ. So the traditional dispensational view states that salvation is always based on the death of Christ. And on this, everyone will agree that there has to be the death of Jesus Christ for there to be salvation. Jesus had to pay the penalty or there is no salvation. And they further say the requirement for salvation is always by faith. Now, where they differ from covenant theology is saying that the content of faith for salvation changes with the revelation of successive dispensations. They are saying now the content of faith is going to be different. And they are actually saying the object of faith for salvation is different depending on the progress of revelation. Dallas Theological Seminary, their doctrinal statement, Article 5. We believe that it has always been true that without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6, and that the principle of faith was prevalent in the lives of all the Old Testament saints. However, we believe that it was historically impossible that they should have had as the conscious object of their faith the incarnate, crucified Son, the Lamb of God, and that it is evident that they did not comprehend, as we do, that the sacrifices depicted the person and work of Christ. 
They're saying they didn't have any clue that the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. They did not comprehend that according to this statement. We believe also that they did not understand the redemptive significance of the prophecies or the types concerning the sufferings of Christ. They didn't understand that. Therefore, we believe that their faith toward God was manifested in other ways as is shown by the long record in Hebrews 11, 1 to 40. Oh, wait a minute. Let's start reading what people did by faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It was, by faith they did something. But are saying that they manifested their faith in God by the things that they did. They proved their faith by what they did. And this is the basis for their salvation. We believe further that their faith thus manifested by doing was counted unto them for righteousness. Charles Ryrie in Dispensationalism Today said, the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. With this, all would agree. Christ had to pay for sins on the cross. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. With this, we would agree. It's not works, it's faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in the various dispensations. And so Ryrie says that the covenant viewpoint is a historically impossible anachronism. The covenant viewpoint is that people were saved by faith in Christ. And he says that's impossible. He goes, in the grace of God, Ryrie says, Jesus, the Son of God, who is the fullness of grace, was not revealed in the Old Testament. I'm shocked. He said, he's not revealed. In the grace of God, he says, there are several specific statements which show the ignorance of Old Testament saints regarding salvation through Christ. And he gives some references here. John 1.21, John 7.40, 1 Peter 1.11. And he says the Johannine passages show how confused the Israelites were about the entire matter. And this makes it difficult to see how one can say that Old Testament saints exercised personal faith in Christ. And he cites John 7.40 as proof that the Old Testament believers didn't have Christ as a conscious object of faith. But if you read John 7.40, it says the opposite. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Oh, but people today are saying, well, the prophet, that's not messianic. Others said, this is the Christ. So far from saying that these people were confused, seems to me they understood per pretty clearly from the Old Testament that what Jesus was saying identified him as the Messiah. Regarding 1 Peter 1.11, Ryrie says that this verse indicates that people in the Old Testament were ignorant regarding salvation through Christ. But again, the verse says just the opposite because it says that the prophets 
in the Old Testament, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Holy Spirit was indicating something to them about Jesus Christ. He's not identified as Jesus, but he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And it was clearly revealed to them that Messiah would suffer and that there would be glories that would follow, including his resurrection, his ascension, his session, his return to the earth, the establishment of his glorious kingdom. These things were revealed to the prophets of the Old Testament, so they are not ignorant of the Christ. He says concerning Job 19, 25, and 26, I know that my Redeemer lives. He shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And Ryrie says, if this is to be used to prove that there was a conscious faith in Christ, Redeemer, the Redeemer referred to here, must be equated with the second person of the Trinity. So he's saying, now if you believe that the Redeemer here is talking about one who's going to provide salvation for you, then it must be the second person of the Trinity. This is impossible to do, he says. For when Job appeals to his Redeemer, he does so without even remotely comprehending that he's the second person of the Trinity. And to say that he did would be an anachronism of the wildest sort. This strong language. Chafer said God has assigned different human requirements in various ages as the terms upon which he himself saves on the ground of the death of Christ. Nevertheless, when the various human requirements of the different ages are investigated, it's found that they come alike in the end to the basic reality that faith is exercised in God. Um, okay, uh, though the specific object of faith, Isaac in the case of Abraham, he's saying here, I... Abraham believed in Isaac. I understand what he's saying. God promised a son to, to Abraham. Uh, Jesus Christ, in the case of those becoming Christians, church-age believers, in other words, varies. Both have a promise of God on which to rest, and both believe God. It does not follow that men of all ages may be saved by believing any promise of God, it is only such promises as God has himself made to be the terms upon which he will save. Okay, we, we, we could multiply these quotes, uh, and I don't want to do that. I want to get on to some other things here. Uh, Pentecost, everyone in the Old Testament was saved by believing something different. And the Christological content in the faith of anyone in the Old Testament, uh, he couldn't find any. That it's not there. Um, but he does make, I think, a very important statement in, in his things to come. And I think this is something we need to keep in mind. There are numerous Old Testament passages which promise salvation to Israel. And we're talking about a messianic salvation. Uh, that we, we've heard several of the men this week talk about this salvation, how God is going to save Israel. 
at the end of the tribulation period. And there's going to be this national salvation. But he said it should be borne in mind that while the emphasis is placed on the national salvation, that national salvation must be preceded by individual salvation. Paul himself, in Romans 9.6, restricts the all Israel of Romans 11.26 to the saved individuals. Thus, in the Old Testament, any promise of salvation must include both aspects. So if you're going to talk about a national salvation for Israel, you have to understand that the only ones who are actually going to experience that salvation are people who have spiritual life. They've been regenerated. They've been born of the Spirit. So I think that this is a very significant uh, idea that he has presented here. John Feinberg, the people of the Old Testament era did not know that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus would die, and that his death would be the basis of salvation. Okay. Now, there is nothing in dispensationalism that requires us to believe that salvation was not by faith in Christ or that we must exclude Christ as the object of our uh, faith for salvation. Dispensationalists, even though we, we've quoted from Ryrie and Chafer and others who said, no, it was not by faith in Christ, there's nothing in dispensationalism that precludes us from saying we are saved by putting faith in that one that God promised to be the deliverer. So we don't have to surrender our dispensationalism in order to have a different object for faith. Now, they are saying faith in God. And this becomes very nebulous when you begin to read these men who are writing about faith in God for salvation in the Old Testament. It becomes very murky. And what is it they have to believe? They say, well, it's either faith in God that God exists or it's faith in some promise that God made to an individual. But God didn't make promises to very many individuals, just a handful of people. But there are writers who say they were saved by believing that promise. Well, what about other people? I mean, if, they, if you say Abraham was saved because he believed God's promise about having a son, what about Eliezer of Damascus? Was he saved by believing that Abraham was going to have a son? No, Chafer says, no, no, no. God didn't give that promise to him. Well, what is he to believe? They're saying it's not by faith in Messiah. And I'll tell you, I'm a little distressed you search the Old Testament, there is no John 3.16 in the Old Testament. There's no verse that says that God will send His Messiah and anyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. There is no such verse. There's no Acts 16.31 type verse in the Old Testament that says, believe on Messiah and you will be saved. And even in the New Testament, there's no verse that says people in the Old Testament or any particular saint from the Old Testament, put faith in Messiah for salvation. We don't have such a statement. So is it reasonable to say, therefore, they didn't have to believe in Messiah? Or could they believe in Messiah? I want to say that faith in God is not enough for salvation today. I don't care where you live. You can be out in the jungles of Brazil... You can be somewhere in Africa. You can be somewhere in Southeast Asia. 
doesn't matter where you are. Faith in God is not enough. Isaiah 48.1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of God and invoke the God of Israel. Did they believe in God? Yes. But not in truth. Not in righteousness. They believe in God? Yes. Were they saved? Well, the ones he's talking about here were not. But we have to ask the question of people in the Old Testament... Testament could be saved without knowledge of a Savior. Why would it be different in our day among people who have not heard about Jesus? Now, there are some who are saying, yeah, God's going to save people who haven't heard about Jesus. If they just go out and look at the stars and say, oh, there is a Creator God. He has great power. He's eternal. He's a righteous God. Is that sufficient to save? No. We have to have a Savior. And they have to put faith in that Savior. And I believe it was not different in the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot being written about progressive revelation, or perhaps it would be better called cumulative revelation. God gave a little revelation, and then later on there was more that was added to it and more that was added to it until today we have this complete picture well, they didn't have the complete picture in the Old Testament. No question about that. They didn't know about the cross. Crucifixion was not a form of punishment that had been devised yet when Abraham was around. They didn't know anything about that. So they didn't know about the cross, per se. So we get more information. But does this mean that God's Savior or Deliverer or Messiah was unrecognizable in the Old Testament, as some say? Is it the New Testament that allows us to see the Messiah in the Old? Some people say, oh, yes, we've got the New Testament, and now we can look back to the Old Testament and we can see Messiah because we have the New Testament. Is it because we have the historical Jesus, and I mean this in the sense that he's revealed in the pages of the New Testament, is it because of that revelation that we're able to see Messiah in the Old Testament? I think that's wrong. I think it's upside down. I think it's backwards. And some have said that the New Testament is the searchlight that allows us to see Messiah in the Old, but in a real sense, it's the Old Testament that proves that Jesus is the Messiah. We have to have the Old Testament first, not the New. It's because we have so much revelation in the Old Testament that when Jesus came on the scene, it was obvious. Here is God's Messiah. Here is God's anointed one. The one who would come and provide salvation so that when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this was not some mysterious statement. They could identify Jesus as Messiah. And you read the Gospels and you find many times Jesus did certain things, said certain things, and people say, this must be the Christ. This must be the Messiah. How would, we, how would they know that? Because the Old Testament came first. And it's the Old Testament searchlight when it reached that point where it was focused on Jesus. Wow, I know what that is. I know who that is. 
So it's the searchlight of the Old Testament that allows us to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And I think that what has happened in our day is we have failed to search diligently to find the Messiah. We're not looking for him. We don't go searching our Old Testament to find the Messiah. Once in a while we run across, oh yeah, well that, that's Jesus. Let's see what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament. Now, Luke records two incidents in chapter 24. Both of them take place on Resurrection Day. First one with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He's saying the Christ was spoken of by the prophets. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, that's Old Testament, the things concerning himself. And you say, well, I can read a lot of places in the Old Testament. I don't see the Messiah. Maybe we're not looking for the right things. Maybe we have blinders on. Down in verse 44, later in the day, Jesus has entered the upper room where the disciples have gathered. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. It's always in existence at that time. All that was written in the Tanakh concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. He didn't say, Oh, you poor people. You couldn't understand what the prophets wrote about me because they haven't yet been given their full meaning. They don't have, you don't have the census plenior, and I'm going to explain to you now. I'm going to open things up to you so that you can understand the hidden meaning from the Old Testament. He didn't say that. He is saying, you are foolish. You're slow to believe it. It's there. It's revealed. Why don't you believe it? A.T. Robertson, in his commentary on Luke 24, 27, said, Jesus found himself in the Old Testament, something that modern scholars don't seem to be able to do. Jesus said, they spoke of me. <laughs> Peter did the same thing. Acts chapter 3. Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. All the prophets talk about the suffering of Messiah, the Christ. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel. Samuel, last of the judges, first of the prophets. Okay, And those who follow... As many have spoken, have also foretold these days. Um, we won't read all of this, but Psalm 118, where it talks about the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders, 
Is that messianic? There are people today who say that's not really a messianic prophecy. And yet it's referred to some eight times in the New Testament as being messianic. How can we deny this? Stephen said, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. The prophets talked about Messiah. Jesus, reasoning with the Jews for three Sabbaths, He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's not New Testament, that's Old Testament. He is opening up the Old Testament to do what? To show them Messiah, to show them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the day, from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Um, Apollos, great evangelist, eloquent preacher. He evangelized the Jewish people by using the Old Testament to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, The rabbis of the intertestamental period found references to Messiah in a lot more passages in the Old Testament than we do today. They've got references to more than 450 passages in uh, in their writings. Did you bring that book? Andy forgot. Robbie forgot. Okay. The, the book that I showed you I referred to earlier by Michael Rydalnik. In the back he's got an appendix that has more than 450 references to Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay. If we can't see Messiah in so many passages, perhaps it's because we are not doing careful inquiry and searching. What did Peter say? Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what? Or what manner of time? The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't know when Christ would come. They didn't know what would be the circumstances. And they're trying to find out, okay, we've got this revelation about Messiah, and they were trying to find out everything they could about this one who was prophesied. And they tried to find out, what's it going to be like when he comes? How can we identify the time when he comes? But they made careful inquiry. I believe we're not seeing Messiah because we're not looking in the way that they looked. Now, there are those who say, oh, these New Testament writers, they took a lot of passages from the Old Testament and they took them out of context or they misinterpreted, they misimplied them. But since they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, for them it was all right, but we cannot use their method of hermeneutics. We can't do that today. S. Lewis Johnson said, can we reproduce the exegesis of the New Testament? Unhesitatingly, the reply is yes. Although we are not allowed to claim for our results the infallibility of the Lord and His apostles, they are reliable teachers of biblical doctrine. They are reliable teachers of hermeneutics and exegesis. We not only can reproduce their exegetical methodology, we must 
if we are to be taught their understanding of Holy Scripture. Their principles, probably taught them by the Lord in His post-resurrection ministry, are not abstruse and difficult. They are simple, plain, and logical. They find the things they find in the Old Testament are really there. They are really there. So there's a third view that sees Old Testament salvation based on faith in the one that God promised who would be a Savior. The revelation of this one increased as time went on. The requirement for salvation was faith in this Deliverer as He was revealed at a given time. And so they could have faith in a seed that was promised. Faith in a Messiah. Faith in Yeshua. And yet, they didn't believe in Jesus specifically because Jesus of Nazareth was not revealed in the Old Testament, but there was a Deliverer. There was a Savior. There was a Redeemer. There was the Messiah who was, prom- who was promised, who would come, and He would bear the sins of the world. Walter Kaiser said, Most of the believers who came to faith before New Testament times are those who give evidence that their faith was based on the God who disclosed Himself in the seed of the woman. So while people before the time of Christ didn't have a full picture of the Savior and the cross, they did have adequate information for salvation. God has always revealed His plan of salvation, and that revelation has always been sufficient to bring man to salvation. It's always been enough. Was it complete in the Old Testament? No. Was it enough for salvation? Yes. Um... I want to comment on on this verse, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Now here, the object of faith is God. And it would be God the Father. It says the one who believes in the one who sent me has eternal life. Is this different from faith in Christ? And I would say, no. Here is how we have to understand faith in God. If you're going to say people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in God, this is how we must understand it. This is Jesus' explanation. It's faith in the one who sent me. It's faith in the one who would send the seed of the woman. The one who would be the basis for blessing all the nations of the earth. The seed of Abraham. It's faith in God who would send a Redeemer. There are those who say, yes, I believe in God, but they don't believe in the God who sent Jesus. They don't believe in the God who sent Jesus Christ. They have a different God because they don't believe in the one who sent Jesus, the Savior. So the ultimate object of faith is God as the classic Dispensationalists contend, but faith in God that saves is faith in the God who promised the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. So how were people in the Old Testament saved? By faith in the salvation that was promised by God. This salvation is a person. 
The promised seed of the woman, the promised seed of Abraham, the promised seed of David, the promised deliverer, Yeshua. Isaiah 62, verse 11, we see this Savior that was promised in the Old Testament, even though there's those who say we really don't have a Savior revealed there. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation, salvation is Yeshua. Now Yeshua, if you want to put it into Greek, would be Jesus. If you want to put it into English, would be Jesus. Surely your salvation, Yeshua, is coming. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. It's a person. He is coming. His reward is with Him. His work is before Him. This is Yeshua. This is Jesus. We can look at a lot of different things and we don't have the time, unfortunately. But you recall when Jesus was born and they took Jesus into the temple so that uh, they could keep the law and have him circumcised. And they came up to this old man by the name of Simeon. Now, Simeon was looking for the Messiah. He was looking for the Savior. And indeed, when, when he saw the baby, we'll look at Luke 29. Oh, I don't have my Bible workshop. Okay. Luke chapter 2, verse 29. When Simeon came to the temple, took the baby Jesus in arms, his arms, he said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua. My eyes have seen your salvation. The very ones that they were looking for in the Old Testament. And then you recall the widow woman, Anna. Godly woman. Luke 2, 36-38, there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years. She did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. People were looking for this redemption. They were looking for this salvation. They were looking for this Messiah. I believe people in the Old Testament were saved by putting faith in the one that God promised. This can be the seed of the woman. I believe that God announced that Jesus Christ, even though He was not revealed as Jesus at that time, as the seed of the woman, He is going to do something to undo what man has just done in his sin. And He is going to crush the head of the serpent who is going to deal a fatal blow to his heel. Then God, after making this promise about one who is going to crush Satan, 
pronounced curses on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, on all creation. And right after God has told Adam, you're going to die, you're going to return to the dust from which you were made, you know what Adam did? He turned to his wife and says, you are the mother of all living. Wait a minute, God just said you're going to die. You're the mother of all living. Do you think he understood something about life after death? I do. If if you look at Genesis chapter 4 in verse 1, Here we find a birth. Adam knew his wife Eve. She got pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. But from the Lord is not really what it says. She says, I have gotten a man. Jehovah. She says, the man, this male child that I just gave birth to is Jehovah. That's what the text says. I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Now, she had the correct theology. She just had the wrong identification. It wasn't Cain who was the Messiah promised, the seed of the woman, but that's what she thought. That didn't work out. But she had the right theology. I believe she understood from that promise in Genesis 3.15 that she was going to give birth to one who was going to be the God-man and who was going to provide salvation for the world. Now, there are many things that we have to come to conclusions about in the Old Testament that are not stated specifically. Were people always saved by faith? I believe that's true. But we can't find a statement in the Old Testament that says, believe in Messiah, you'll be saved. But I believe that's the truth. There are other things I think we need to stop and think and ask questions about certain things that are happening. You have right after this, Cain and Abel. And you know the story that uh, you have Cain and he was a tiller of the ground and he brought the fruit of the ground to the Lord as an offering. Abel, in verse 4 of Genesis 4, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. You read that a thousand times. Okay. Why did he bring the firstborn? That's a question, isn't it? Why would he do that? I mean, you get a lot of discussion about, well, this is a blood sacrifice, and well, but why would he bring the firstborn? And then it says he brought the fat. Now, that's a very significant statement, and usually people don't even look at that. He brought the fat. But when we go to the book of Leviticus and begin reading about the fat, I love it. It says the fat is the Lord's. Jim is the Lord's. The fat is the Lord's. Okay. But when it says the fat is the Lord, it's not just talking about this stuff you got around your waist. No. When it says the fat of the Lord, it's talking about special fat. 
fat that's on the kidneys, fat that's on the liver. It's talking about fat that's on the inside and how you get this fat. You're going to have to cut the throat of this animal. It's going to bleed out. And then you're going to have to gut it. You're going to have to cut the thing open and tip out the innards. And then you're going to have to cut the fat off from that. And that, that's offered to the Lord. Now, if, if Abel didn't have instructions, I submit to you, this man is truly bizarre. <laughs> this is weird. I mean, who would kill an animal, gut it, cut cut the fat off these internal organs and say, here, God, here's an offering. Is that not strange? Why would he do this? I believe he had instructions. When, when God made tunics of skin for the man and the woman, God could have said, let there be Prada. <laughs> oh, he could have said, let there be clothing. He didn't do that. He could have gone out and gotten flax or something and woven some things into garments. He didn't do that. It says made them out of skin. Now, we're not told this, but I think an animal died and that the man and the woman for the first time saw physical death. I think God took an animal, sheep or a goat, and killed it. And now they watch this animal die. And then what happened? Well, you had to skin this thing out. Now, this is not a quick process. It takes time to skin an animal. Any of you hunters, you know this. And then what do you do? Well, you take the skin off. You've got to go through all the process of tanning it, curing it. This is not something you're going to do in a day. It doesn't work that way. And if it's going to be something that fits, there's going to be some kind of design here. I believe they went through a process and God is showing them something. And it's the death of an innocent sacrifice that's going to provide covering for their sin. Just as later, the death of an innocent sacrifice would take away our sins. I believe that God is giving instructions. We're not told that. But why else would Abel bring a, an animal sacrifice and, and offer it in that way? You can read later about Lamech who talks about the ground was cursed, but he's, he's going to have a son. He's going to call him Noah. He's going to provide comfort for us. He's going to provide the redemption. Noah took seven clean animals on the ark. Where did he get instruction about clean animals? Why seven? Did he have instructions? We're not told that, but it's reasonable to assume. And how would he know a clean animal from an unclean? He had to have instructions. When he got off the ark after the flood... He begins to sacrifice animals. Why would he do that? I believe they had sufficient information. Is it all recorded for us? No. But it was sufficient for them. And I believe that people were saved by putting faith in the one that was promised. I believe that they understood significance of animal sacrifice. Otherwise, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away to the sin of the world, what does that mean? I think they understood they knew what that was. Put faith in that one that God promised. It's going to take away your sins. It's going to be the basis for receiving eternal life. So, have questions? Rob.
with you. I agree that the sacrifice of Abel was brought by faith. Thank you. I believe that uh, I agree with as you were teaching that the sacrifice Abel brought was by means of faith, and I think the Scripture declares that. I, I would look at, at uh, Hebrews 11, uh, 4, that says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, and that it was a faith application. And then I would look at uh, Romans ten seventeen and say, Well, where did he get that faith? That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so I believe those two passages prove your statement that he was operating on the basis of the teaching he had been given. Would you agree with yes. that approach? Yes. Okay. Well said. I had much I would like to say. and <laughs> If you want to stay, we'll do that. <laughs> Any questions over here? David? Andy? Can you can you comment on the angel of the Lord briefly? Like Daniel three, the angel that shows up. Do you see a Christological? Oh, I do. Okay. Yeah, I I, I think that's um, there are many Christophanies, if you will. I believe um, one like the Son of Man, I mean, even Nebuchadnezzar when he says that. I mean, he's got to have some understanding. And and I, I I do believe yes that is Christological. Any other questions? You know, one thing that you're saying is that when we have a sufficient revelation, but God doesn't tell us everything that He told people in the Old Testament. Right. And, and it, yeah, it's selective. And and from what we know that they knew we can legitimately infer that God must have told them something. That there's more to the more to the story. When we get to heaven, we'll find out the other details, but we're given enough to where by thinking about it, we can come to understand that maybe that serpent was more than a snake. Yeah. All right, anything else? All right, well, Jim, thank you so much. That was great. As always, appreciate that. Father, thank you for this time that we've had at this conference, the tremendous, tremendous opportunities we've had to study your word, to sharpen our thinking, to be challenged to think more deeply, more precisely about your word, to be greater students of your word, to for the men who are here who want to be pastor teachers, those who are And each one of us needs to continue to sharpen our skills and the languages because this is your word to us. And nothing in this life is more important than accurately understanding what you have said to us in your word. Now, Father, we continue to pray for Chafer Seminary. We continue to pray for George Meisinger, his health, his strength, his recovery. We pray for some of the events this summer in Albuquerque, specifically the uh, dinner that will take place on August the 5th, and we pray that 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 would be a profitable time to let uh, Albuquerque know about Schaefer Seminary and to reach out to a number of pastors in the area, letting them know 
about Chafer Seminary. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for and bless the efforts as we seek to train and equip men to lead the church, leaders in the church, to be able to teach your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.